Hey there, Kelly here. Guests on the show share so many great ideas, but how do you start putting them into practice? Well, that's exactly what you'll explore when you sign up for the podcast weekly newsletter. Each week, you'll get three ideas from past guests sent straight to your inbox. You'll explore materials, techniques, tools, concepts, and mindsets in bite-sized pieces so that you can think about them and fold them into your own practice. It's completely free and you get it by signing up at learntopaintpodcast.com slash newsletter. So many artists, that's how they paint. They paint and they react. They paint and they react. And it's a very legitimate process for painting. For me, no. I have to plan. I have to know. When I know what I'm doing and I've done it in a small painting and I'm doing the larger painting, there's something about that that allows me to be bolder. Hello and welcome to the Learn to Paint podcast. I'm your host, Kellyanne Powers. This week, I talked to the artist you just heard, watercolorist Peggy Habits. Habits' work includes portraits, figures, and landscapes. We talk mostly about her portraiture work, but we cover a bit of it all. Habits discusses how her process gives her freedom to be bold. She explains the most important things new watercolorists can work on, And she gives great practical advice for how to get good reference photos, plus a whole lot more. Head to learntopaintpodcast.com slash podcast slash episode four to get the show notes and links to Habits Work. While you're there, sign up for the newsletter to get each new episode plus articles and fun links. Here we go. Hi, Peggy. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for being with us today. Oh, thanks so much for having me. What is it that attracts you to watercolor? Oh my gosh, I love watercolor so much. I've tried so many other mediums and there is nothing like the spontaneity and the fluidity of watercolor. When you start those first couple of washes and you see the mixing and mingling and it is the most addicting thing. I almost warn people when they start out in watercolor that they may never leave. It's a good problem to have. It is a good problem to have. What do you find most challenging about it as a medium? Almost everything I just said. (laughs) It's uncontrollable. It does its own thing a lot of times. You really have to know your materials. That's very important to know how to control the pigments and the water and the paper and the brushes are all so important. And using the same materials over and over really helps you to be able to do that. At what point did you decide you wanted to really learn how to paint? Because there's a difference between painting for fun, and that's wonderful, and then really deciding, I'm going to get good at this. Almost from the start. I was a graphic designer for 15 years, and when I took a leave of absence from my job, I took a class for fun. And the first class was an abstract acrylic class, and it didn't click with me so much. The second class was watercolor and it clicked right away. And the teacher was so good about finding a two inch spot on a huge painting that was good, (laughs) which is really, you know, when you're starting out and somebody's pointing out some good thing on a big flop, it's, it really is encouraging. And I started to meet people who were doing painting as a career. And 
I wanted to work. I didn't want to go back to graphic design, and I really thought that this might be a possibility. So it was really right off the start. I was pretty intense about it. I was that student in the class that was at the edge of their seat and, you know, following everything the instructor said and writing everything down. And I took a lot of workshops and talked to a lot of people and, and um, yeah. As you were trying to get better, did you focus on finishing paintings or were you laser specific and I'm going to get better at design or composition, that kind of thing? My initial focus was to paint realistically. I immediately started into portraiture. And so getting a likeness was very important in the beginning. So there was a lot of technical skills. And I really did try to finish paintings to oblivion (laughs) until they were just, no more could be done to them. But mostly it was learning the technique and that was what I was really focused on. So you mentioned materials being really important. Why is understanding materials, especially in watercolor, so important? Success with watercolor relies on being able to control the amount of water and amount of pigment on your brush and on the paper. And it takes a lot of time to understand how to achieve certain effects with watercolor. If you have poor paper or you have inferior paints or you're just using little tiny blobs of paint instead of really loading up your brush, you can't achieve what you want to achieve. What is the biggest struggle you see your students facing with materials? The tiny little piece of paint that are dried and hard on their palette and they pull it out and they get their brush and they try so hard to get pigment on that brush. And I come over and I just squeeze the tube (laughs) into the palette and try to get them to just bite the bullet and put that paint in the palette and be able to load that brush up. That's the biggest thing. Paper has come a long way. I don't anymore. Most students have at least good enough paper. That wasn't always the case. I guess it's become more economical to have certain professional grade paper and um, palettes. It's all of it, actually. <laughs> palettes and brushes and using little tiny piece of toilet paper or something to dry your brush off that they can't control the water that way. So I've been going into the workshops and showing them a setup that really will work for them. A big bowl of water, a nice big stack of paper towels or a towel to dry their brush off, a variety of sizes of brushes. You can't paint a whole background with a tiny number two round brush. So I have them pull out their their big brushes. And that's scary for a lot of students to use a big brush. So that's important. A palette is important. One that you can really mix up your paint, mix everything in the middle and not have too much problems with the wrong colors mixing together. So it needs to be large enough. When someone talks about moisture control, what is that? When you are painting, you dip your brush in water and then you dip it in your paint. And the amount of water on your brush mixed with the paint varies a great deal depending on what technique you want to achieve. So having too much water, you get wishy-washy areas of paint. You don't get nice strong edges. You get mud eventually because the paint, there's not enough to sit where it needs to sit. It's too much water, so it all flows together. Having not enough water, you get almost the dry brush effect, which you might want. So there are all kinds of variations. There's a spectrum. 
and you need to figure out what you want to do and how much water and pigment you need. It's, it's a little bit of a dance. Do you have students coming into your workshops that moisture control is sort of a new concept to them? Oh, absolutely. I mentioned that stack of paper towels because it's a constant thing. Every workshop, I walk around and I sit down and maybe I'll help them show them how to paint something. And I'm looking for where to dab my brush and it's just a a little tiny swatch of paper towel and it's soaked. So I sometimes we even stop the workshop and have everybody just look and pull out all of their paper towels. We kill a tree in a workshop, unfortunately, but it's so important to be able to have a dry brush when you need it. So talk to me about physically what a student does to control how much moisture is in their brush. Dip your brush, you dab it with a paper towel or a towel before you start mixing your paint on your palette. But you still leave enough water on the brush to be able to grab the paint and mix it in there. And then it's a little bit of a a dance, as I said, where you are just dabbing in the water and dabbing on the paper towels and back to the palette. What is the biggest challenge you see students facing with portraiture? Some students don't take the time to get their drawing right. So from there, there's not much you can do. You just can't recover from it. It's it's watercolor and the eye is over here and it needs to be here. It's a little hard to change. You can do it. It's been done. But why put yourself through that? So taking the time to get it drawn right is key. If drawing is a stumbling block and you spend so much time on your drawing, you probably will tighten up and not want to ruin it (laughs) so you don't take risks. So what I do as sort of a hybrid is I will take my reference photo and get it the size that I want and then I cut it out and I trace along the outline of the head. So there I can see, I can mark, okay, the eyes will be about here, the nose will be about here, and I just put little tick marks and draw it in. So uh, the other thing is you have to worry about erasing a lot. You can erase the sizing off of the paper, and that affects how it accepts the water and the paint. Why do you think students want to skip the drawing part and the learning to draw part? A lot of students want to paint loosely and freely, and they think that that's the way to do it, is to just take your brush and start painting. And I think a lot of times what happens is it starts to look contrived. That looseness isn't really for a reason. It's just a technique that they learned. I think there's a difference. When you have strong skills, you know what good design is, you you know how to draw it at least somewhat, I think. You take those skills and then to loosen up with them, you can do it so easily because you already have that knowledge. And to make a simple stroke, you can um, identify a figure with one stroke or two strokes as opposed to, you know, having a tight drawing, but that's because you already know what that figure should look like, how that arm bends, how that body moves. Let's jump into your process. Could you give us a bird's eye view of your process. Let's take a portrait head only for an example. The first thing I would do is have very good reference material. And we could talk about that separately if you want, because that has its own uh, criteria. But I would have my reference material and I would think about what I wanted to say about this person. So what am I feeling about this expression or this, this mood or 
how do I want to capture this person? So we'll start with making decisions about personality, for instance. If somebody has a very bold personality, I might be apt to paint much looser. There might be more color. There might be less hard edges and and more lost edges. There might only be a few areas that have detail and the rest of it maybe is suggested. It really depends on what I want to say about that person and how I want to capture them. And then I might do what's called a value study, which is a small black and white study. And basically that is a sketch that I only put in black and white and gray and they're not lines, they're shapes. And I cre- I decide where I want my darkest darks, my lightest lights. And if that works as a small sketch, if I look at that and think, oh, that has impact, that will draw me from across the room as a painting. When I do it larger and if I follow that value sketch, chances are it's going to have that same impact. And then I might do a color study. If I'm not sure if it's maybe something a little more complicated, I might do a couple color studies. And those are small little mini paintings, maybe five by seven. And that tells me what the background might look like, what colors I might use, what techniques I'm use where my edges would be lost, things like that, where my detail will be and where it won't be. And it's not a tight painting that, you know, it takes four hours to do. It's just a quick color sketch. I just put things in and it kind of helps me be more spontaneous when I'm painting because I already have the roadmap. I don't have to sit and stop and think, oh, color should I, that was the wrong color. Now I have to change that. Now what do I do? So it's sort of, um, it's, it's just a little bit of a guide for me. And then I draw the image and then I'm ready to go. That would be the process up to the painting. What does the process give you as an artist? It's helping me work out ideas. When I talked about doing a head only, I probably don't go into that much detail with the planning because there's just not that much to do. But I will still often do a, you know, the value sketch and a color sketch. When the paintings get more complicated and there's multiple figures, I'm changing the background, it's a large painting, it's almost reassuring. It's just almost a necessary step for me to know. This is where I'm going and it reminds me that this is what excited me about the painting. And when I look at my little color study, I usually have it above where I paint. When I look at that and I see what I wanted to accomplish there, it really kind of loosens me up when I'm doing the larger painting. When I'm using a two-inch brush and I'm covering (laughs) a painting with, you know, all this color and paint and and it's going everywhere, I I know in my mind it's going to work because it it already did. When you're first starting, there's this desire, maybe because of time limitations or being new, that you just want to jump into the painting. Like the painting itself is the goal. Is there a danger in that? I'm pretty careful about how I answer that because it really depends on the artist. So many artists, that's how they paint. They paint and they react. They paint and they react. And it's a very legitimate process for painting. For me, no. I have to plan. I have to know. When I know what I'm doing and I've done it in a small painting and I'm doing the larger painting, there's something about that that allows me to be bolder which is almost, you wouldn't expect that. It almost seems like it's more of a timid way, but you you can load up your brush. You can do that background. 
you know, almost black in that one area because you knew that dark value was necessary there. So for me, it's really important. For a lot of my students, it's important, but not for everybody. There's this idea that bold, spontaneous painting, if that's your goal, it means you don't plan. Now that's a little bit different. Bold, spontaneous painting is different than abstract expressionism, which is reacting to mark making. If I were doing an abstract, bold, (laughs) spontaneous looking painting, I would do a color study because I would want to know my color. I would want to know what I'm trying to achieve and I would want a rough idea. And with watercolor, there's only so many layers, unless you're using opaques, that you can make those choices. It's a little bit different in an oil painting or a pastel or another medium where you can erase, you can take things out, you can layer and layer and layer. Watercolor is a little bit different. So you don't always need to do all of the planning. Over time, there are certain things you know will work. You've done it in a certain way, so you don't have to sit and do 10 color studies or something like that. But I think in the beginning, it really is helpful. How much is thinking a part of your painting process? Again, when someone's starting painting, they think about painting as the process of painting, actually being in the paint. And the more I talk with people, the more I'm realizing that there's just so much thinking that goes into painting that as a beginner, you just have no idea about It's overwhelming for new students. And I sometimes, I really have to remind myself when I go into a workshop and I'm teaching, you know, there's the advanced students and then there are the newer students. And the newer students are trying so hard and they're writing down everything you say and it's almost information overload. And there is a lot of thinking and considering. And I would suggest for new students to have a goal and just focus on a few things in the beginning. Don't try to do perfect design and this technique and this technique and all of that. Just something that you want to learn. Maybe it's just achieving a likeness. So you're focusing on maybe values, accurate values. And that in itself, if somebody can accomplish that, that didn't know it before, that's a huge jump in learning how to paint realistically or accurately. But have a goal. I would say to have a goal because I think it takes away from all the overload that you get. If you're, you just get so much information and it's very hard. It's, and it's hard when, you know, you go on Instagram, you look at all of this gorgeous artwork and you want to do that and you want to do that and you want to do that and maybe just keep it specific. And then as you grow, certain things you don't realize become muscle memory. I don't think anymore about water control. I can feel it. And and that I realized that one day when somebody asked me to explain that, I realized that I just do it. I can tell how much water I have by how my brush is dragging on the palette. And I didn't realize it, but it's something that just, it's hundreds and hundreds of paintings over time that becomes uh, something that you no longer have. To, it's like, um, you know, as a child, you learn all these big steps, tying your shoe, walking, all of those things. And eventually you're not thinking about those things anymore. That is a comfort to hear. <laughs> Could you walk us through how you approach the values and colors, but of a face? Where do you start? Where do you end? The drawing is there, it's finished, and I'm looking at my reference photo, and I'm trying to 
to decide where the light is coming from. Once I think about that and decide that, then what I will do is take a very watery mixture of a light color, a yellow, maybe raw sienna or maybe a transparent yellow, very watery. So it's almost, you almost don't see it once it dries. And I will paint around where I want to leave the white of the paper. So if there's a strong highlight or there's an area where I don't want paint, I want it to look like a strong light, I want to leave the white of the paper. I'll paint around that and that tells me as I'm painting to stay away from that. Otherwise I'll accidentally paint right over it. Then I start out by mixing quinacridone rose and raw sienna together on the palette in a watery mixture. If it's a darker skinned person, I might use that mixture or I might add some burnt sienna to that. Then I paint the whole face with this mixture of raw sienna and quinacridone rose. And then while it's wet, I'll take more of some of them and drop them in on the paper and adding more colors in different areas. This is where you can really make the skin tones come alive because you're not mixing one color on your palette. You're mixing color that's mingling on the paper. So I'll take some Scarlet Pyro, which is a very bright red, like fire red, and I'll drop it where the nose is. And I might drop it, you know, on the cheeks or somewhere where I know there's going to be more warmth. I might drop more or less of the raw sienna and the quinacridone rose all around the face. And what I'm painting is the first couple values, the lightest light all the way to maybe a mid value. And I let it almost even get a little garish because you can always tone down color. But once you tone down color, you can't really get that pure color back. So I try to keep the pure color and it might look a little wild at first because <laughs> there's just intense color everywhere. The next couple of steps, things get toned down as you start to put in shadows and things. So then the hard part starts now. This is the shadow area. This is difficult and it, it's a struggle because to do shadows that look lively and don't look dead and heavy, it takes a little bit of skill. So I start with usually an ultramarine blue. It's semi-transparent. It works really well with those first two colors that I talked about. And I'll just do a wash along the shadow shape and I'll do one whole shadow shape, like maybe along one side of the face. And while it's wet, I will drop in the other two colors, a mixture of the other two colors. They're already mixed on the palette and I drop that in. And so that's really an orange neutralizing a blue because they're complements. So you're getting a neutralized, but because they're mixing on the paper, the blue's peeking through, the other colors are peeking through. So it's a very lively shadow. It's just not a big flat shadow. I paint realistic portraits and experimental portraits. So they're a little bit of a different process. When it's realistic, for instance, when I did commission portraits for 10 years, I was more aware of painting the skin tones realistically and the shadow areas had to really, you almost had to capture them perfectly because that defines the bone structure of the person. So there was a lot more, a little tightening up and a little more control the water and the paint and things were, you know, little smaller areas. Whereas the more experimental portraits, I let things run and I let things mix and it's a little bit different process. Is understanding thicknesses of paint and moisture control Im more important when you're doing dropping in paint because of how the paint moves? Yes. 
Yes, and also knowing the paint itself. The, the lighter, more transparent paints will flow a little freer. The heavier paints, like a cerulean blue, some of the other paints that are, are more opaque, they'll sit and, and the water will actually push them. You could see it pushing the, the paint. And they don't always play nice. <laughs> you, you, you have to learn the paint on top of everything else. What is your palette of colors that you use? It's a Frank Webb palette. So it's a big rectangular palette with these open wells. And I range it from transparent, mostly transparent to opaque because I start on the transparent side of the palette and work my way around usually. And I use professional grade paint. I use several different brands that I've tried that I really like. And uh, mostly having a variety of yellows, blues, greens, and a big area to mix the colors in. So if you check out the show notes, Peggy has given us a list of all the colors she uses. It's got a display of the palette and the brushes. So you said that you work from transparent to opaque. Could you talk about some of those properties that paints have? So the quinacridones are generally staining and transparent. They're lighter, phthalo blue. You put that on your paper, you'll never, ever get it off. But they're beautiful and they layer nicely over each other. The more opaque colors, the cerulean blue, cobalt blue, there's a, um, a sepia that I use. Even if you use titanium white, those are all very heavy and opaque. And they lay on top of the paint sometimes. They like you can put a swash of cerulean blue on top of something that you've painted and it will just sit there and it changes the whole texture of the paper. You may or may not want that. It just depends. Watercolor really is super diverse in its pigments. It is. And again, every medium has its strengths and watercolor can be very opaque and you can build it up, but only to a point. There's a point where there's a shine that starts to happen and it's just too much paint. It's no longer being absorbed into the paper and it's just sitting there and it drives, it doesn't, I have friends, it doesn't bother them at all. It drives me nuts. So uh, sometimes I'll actually remove all the layers of paint in that area and start over just so I don't have that shine. It's something that I don't like. How does accurate drawing help you paint loosely? To paint loosely or realistically, I think it's important to have the right drawing skills and to have good solid drawing skills. And even if you don't paint realistically, I really still believe that having strong drawing skills will aid you. There's something about being able to create a gesture of a person. Usually if you can draw that person well, the reason a lot of times that you see people going from very successful realism and getting looser and looser is because it's easier for them and more economical to suggest a figure with a few strokes, but they have all those years of skills. They know how that arm bends or how where those eyes should be or the fact that those sockets are a little darker and they might just suggest the face that way with you know, shadow shape. So I think it's important to really do that. And I think a lot of people do want to skip that step. And they do want to say, I just want to paint loosely. I just want to be free. <laughs> but I think the freedom comes from learning those skills and also learning rules so you can break the rules. You can break them because you know what they are and it's not arbitrary or accidental. You're breaking them on purpose for a reason. If someone wants to learn to draw, how would you suggest they go about learning to draw? 
there's a book. We still read books, don't we? <laughs> Drawing on the right side of the brain, I had used it years and years ago when I was teaching teenage students, and it's probably the best book. But students could learn just by doing it, just by taking still life objects and, you know, simple things and, and drawing. I mean, there's really no substitute for it. But Drawing on the Right Side of the Brain is such a good book because she has you do these neat little exercises that keeps you from drawing an eye. You're actually just drawing shapes that become an eye. I would recommend it if somebody really wants to learn the skill of drawing. What is value and why is it important? Value is how you perceive the lightness or darkness of something. And it's one of the most important things that I teach in a workshop for realistic portraiture, because it's the, the thing that, uh, aside from an accurate drawing, if you can achieve accurate values, you can paint in any color. You can do a lot of things that aren't realistic, but it will still look realistic because of the values. So for instance, a shadow, most times people perceive the shadow maybe darker or lighter than what it actually is. And that just takes careful observation. The really hard thing about values is that they're relative to what's surrounding them. The way you view them is relative. What I mean by that is if you have a color and it's surrounded by a very dark value, it will look much, much lighter than the same exact color surrounded by white. And I show my students this exercise, that exact thing. And they swear that these two squares are different values. And when we put a little hole over them and just isolate the two areas, they see that they're exactly the same. And that is the hardest thing. So when you're painting, you're often tricked by your own eyes and you have to stop and test and check. We check with a bullet hole, which is a, a hole punch in a piece of paper. And you place that over an area you're not sure what the value is. It isolates it from what's surrounding it. And that helps you to see the value a little more accurately. You have to get in the habit to slow down and check things. And if you often see a beginner student do a, a portrait and the eyes look like they're bugging out, that's because beginners tend to paint the whites of the eyes too light. They think they're white. They're usually really dark, much, much darker. Sometimes if they're in shadow, they're almost indiscernible from the iris in value. And it's such a slight difference, but people still think white of the eye, so they're thinking it's white. So that takes a little bit of getting the student to slow down and use that bullet hole and, and to check it. And that usually helps a lot. Where are a couple places on the face that are generally the darkest? The sockets of the eyes generally. Of course, the nostrils, but a lot of people paint them black, which really, I think part of that is because the photographs will often not show all of the color range of a face. Um, but if you look at nostrils, generally there's warmth, there's color in there, but they're, they're dark, but they're usually not black. Oh, this little spot under the lower lip, there's a little area down there that people usually paint a little too wimpy, but they're usually a nice shadow shape there and under the chin. If it's a strong light, those are the areas that will pick up a lot of shadow shapes. And then generally, where's the lightest lights? Anything that's closest to the light, 
So the nose or the forehead or the cheeks or the chin, depending on where the light is. If it's coming from below, then you won't have that strong light on the forehead. It, it really depends. Um, when you first start your painting, it's a good idea to try to identify what direction the light is coming from. Think about that first. Well, that sort of leads us into reference photos. How do you get a good reference photo? One of the best ways to get a good reference photo is to use natural light by a window. Flash, no. <laughs> Flash will wash out the face, the shadows. It will cause weird reflections where you don't want them. You can always tell a painting that has been painted from a reference photo with a flash. You can always tell. If you place somebody by a window and the light's coming in from the side um, and you just play around with rotating the head left or right just to see where the shadow shapes lie, you can get some really nice, really nice shadow shapes to paint and also the color is really nice from that type of light. What do you generally take from a reference photo and what do you not take? If I'm painting a head-only portrait, then I want detail. So I want it to be a clear, detailed photo that shows me everything I need to know instead of trying to make that up. If I'm painting a scene and I'm putting figures in it, I can use something shot on my cell phone because I'm not describing I could do a figure in a few shapes and values, and you can define a figure that way without all of the detail of a portrait. Thinking about portraits again, how does bounce light work? There's direct light from a source, and bounce light is when uh, light is coming from something else and bouncing up onto the figure. So if they're wearing a white shirt, for instance, you may see uh, a white or red or whatever the color they're wearing, but you may see that reflected on their chin, maybe the bottom part of their nose, any of those planes that are horizontal. And it's a softer light, it has softer edges, whereas a single source light that's strong will tend to have harder edges. Well, actually, let's talk about that. What kind of edges do faces have and where are they? That's a good question, too. It's great to have a variety of edges, for one thing. That's really important. If you, I mean, there is a style that's all hard edge, and there's a style that's all soft. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking in general terms. It's more interesting for the viewer to see hard edges, soft edges, and lost edges. And lost edges are where two dark areas or two light areas merge, and you don't really define the edge, but the viewer their eyes will finish that edge. And it's just more interesting for them to be looking at a painting that has that variety. So a hard shadow with a strong light will most likely have a hard edge. There's a harder edge along the bridge of the nose, oftentimes under the nose, that little area under the bottom lip. There's usually where the chin starts to the bottom lip. There's usually this little rectangular shape under there that tends to have some harder edge. A lot of people paint smile lines with the hard edge, but that really needs a lot of care. That's almost you get that marionette look. So it's really not as hard as you think it is. It And softening it even more than the photo is showing it will help that look more realistic. Um, hair has shadows and shape to it. People often will paint hair with one line, 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 little lines. Whereas when you look at it and you squint your eyes, you can see shapes in the hair that have value. And when you paint those shapes, you end up painting what looks like hair. What is the challenge you see with people and backgrounds in a painting? 
not planning them. <laughs> and that is the, that is something that is so hard in a workshop when people are learning. Well, we talked about this earlier where there's too much information. So, you know, to have a student plan the background and do these techniques with dropping in pain and learning about warm and cool. I mean, it's really, it's almost too much. I'm surprised people don't run out screaming sometimes. So what happens is they will paint a beautiful portrait and white background. And then they say, well, what should I put in the background? And it's like, I don't know any more than they do. And I said, I don't know. What does your color study look like? Which, of course, I know they didn't do one. So what will happen when you do that is you either play it safe and you do the same background all the time because you know that's a nice background. Or you might accidentally do something really great. Or more often than not, it just doesn't work. Because once you add color and value to the background, you've changed this portrait. So a small color study is my my mantra, you know, even just a stick, you know, you just do a very simple face and then just test out like some of the color backgrounds, how light, how dark. It's really helpful. Because what do you need your background to be? Every inch of the painting should be beautiful, but it shouldn't be screaming for attention. So there's certain areas that you want the viewer to look at. Not everything should be as equal of importance. So the background might be more important than the figure. That's possible, but you have to make that decision ahead of time. More often than not, it's a supporting character. It's something that doesn't dominate the portrait. If it's just a head only, then generally, yes, the face is the focal point and the background should really just support that in some way. For a good background, you talked about it needs to be part of the plan in both the value and the color plan. I know that in your workshop, you have them do three color studies. Could you talk about what those three are and why they're important? I do that for longer workshops. Um, we don't have time for the shorter ones, but if I'm doing a five day, we'll spend an entire day on value studies and color studies. And um, they hate the value studies and I warn them ahead of time. You'll hate these, but you'll like them. You'll like me by the end of the day because then we'll do these color studies. So what we usually will do is the first one is you do get it out of your system. Do the green grass, the red stop sign, the, you know, everything being local color and just paint it and just do it. Then they look at, I give them a handout that has different color schemes. So they pick a color scheme that maybe they might want to try. So the second one will be something that they might want to try. It's a little riskier, but you know, it might be interesting. And then the third one is color scheme they would never try. Why not? It's five by seven. You can paint this little thing in maybe, you know, a half hour. And a lot of times that's the one they want to do. And there's been some really exciting paintings that come out of that. What are color schemes and why are they useful? Why not just like pick and choose as you're going. <laughs> well, color harmony is important. So color harmony comes from colors that aren't clashing in unusual ways. If you're using a yellow and it has a lot of green in it, it might not be the right yellow to use with other colors. So that part you have to kind of work out. And also there are there's probably hundreds of color schemes that you could use, but it's helpful 
when people are first learning about it to just give them, I give them a packet and there's maybe like seven different color schemes to try or more. There's probably more. And so they can pick from there and it sort of spells it out. These are things that have been shown to be harmonious together. So try these like a violet, an orange, and a, a green. It's something that people use almost to the point of cliche for landscapes. But try that in your painting and see what happens. You know, that grass could be one of those other colors. It doesn't have to be green in your mind. The hard part about that is when you pick a color scheme, trying to show students that it's not just full strength, violet, orange, and green. It's the whole, all the way to neutral. It's the whole range mixing those colors and getting lots of um, neutrals. So we sometimes will do these strips and mix colors and so they can see the whole range of color that they can get from those three colors. Right, because I imagine that at first when you hear, oh, I can only stick with three colors, that feels really limiting until you realize, oh, wow, there's a lot I can do with those three colors. Yes, and it's hard. It's very hard in one day, even one full day of doing it to learn that because you still your brain is telling you green, violet, orange, and you're painting the dog violet and you're painting, you know, things and it's spotty and it feels odd and it's not working. And it's because they're not adding neutrals in there and they're not mixing colors and they're not getting something like yellow almost goes to brown when it's neutralized. So you have that whole range. It still reads as yellow, but if you isolate it and you see it, you see that it's actually almost brown. And while they're doing this, they're trying to replicate their value study in these colors. Yes, and <laughs> paint a likeness, right? It's a bit much. That part of the workshop is, is a bit advanced. But when I have beginner students and I see them struggling, I will often just have them do one thing and work on that with them instead of trying to do that whole range. It's a lot to absorb. What freedom does getting it give them on the other side? Oh, because you don't have to stick with your photo reference and paint a photo, a painting that looks exactly like a photo. We learn about editing. So, you know, maybe that bush isn't crucial to being in that painting. It doesn't add anything. You take things out, you add things in. Same with color. You don't have to stick with local color. Sometimes a painting is, oftentimes a painting is a lot more interesting when you're using color to create a mood or an emotion or, or something that is beyond that photograph. And I show them an example. I live in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, and so we have a lot of barges and rivers and things that look dingy and grungy. And I show them this photograph that I had of all of these barges. And then I showed them the finished painting, which was purples and yellows. And it, it was it had a whole different mood to it and evoked all kind of a, um, feelings of almost nostalgia just because of the choice of color. That moves us into mood. How does an artist create mood? What tools do they have at their disposal from a mood standpoint? So you have your values, strong values create a whole different feeling in a painting than very soft values that are close together. Color 
absolutely can evoke a mood just by how intense it is or what you're using it with or just how you use it. What you focus on, sometimes when I'm painting a figure, I might just focus on one area of the figure. Maybe it's an arm or something. Like for my dancer series, I did a whole series of dancers and uh, I wanted, there were certain body parts that were just so interesting because of the way the light was hitting and the muscle and the rest of the painting was so subtle. You almost, it almost disappeared. But there was parts of the body that were very detailed and focused and um, that created a specific mood. Where do you make those choices about mood? When you have a reference photo, it's a really good idea to ask yourself, why? Why am I painting? Not what am I painting, but why am I painting this? What am I drawn to? What, what am I excited about? The value sketch and the color study sort of help you remember what excited you about that when you first encountered it. I mean, even when you're painting plain air or painting from life, there's something that you're excited about that you're trying to capture and trying to remember that is, is really important. If someone came to you and said, I want to get good at painting, how do I do that? What would your advice be to them? I would say if you know what you want to explore, what, what are your goals? Be clear about that, what you want to do. Uh, you want to paint portraits. You want to explore color. You, you know, you want to paint plain air. Figure that out first and then find somebody who's doing it the way you want to do it and follow them and take workshops from them. Limited time, you know, if you can't get time off for a workshop, I guess the second best thing is to try to find videos, but it's not quite the same experience as being in the workshop and watching the instructor and asking them questions and watching the other student respond and interpret what that instructor is saying. So I would say workshop videos and just paint there's no substitution for hours. Paint a hundred ugly paintings, throw them in a drawer, a drawer, and don't show anybody. And you'll be amazed at number 100. You can find more information about Peggy Habits, including her workshops, at her website, www.peggyhabits.com, and on Facebook and Instagram. Find links to all of it in the program notes. Peggy, thank you so much for joining us today. Oh, thanks so much. It was great. Thanks for joining me this week. Head to learn to paint podcast slash podcast slash episode four to get the show notes, links to Habits Work, and to sign up for the newsletter. And if you enjoyed today's episode, share it with a friend. Happy painting!